Welcome to episode 203 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Just a few days ago, the International Energy Agency released its new net zero roadmap for 2023, and it's a major departure from the last one, which came out in 2021. I'm going to talk about it with uh, Kingsmill Bond, who's a senior principal in the Strategic Analysis and Engagement Group of the Rocky Mountain Institute. So welcome to the interview, Kingsmill. Hi, Malcolm. Nice to be here. Well, lovely to have you back. You're, you've become a regular on the, uh, on the podcast. And one of the reasons for that, Kingsmill, is that uh, I was, and I'll, I'll use this, what I was doing last week to illustrate the point. I was reporting on the World Petroleum Congress in Calgary. And the there was a very clear uh, attempt to discredit the International Energy Agency and its forecasts of fossil fuel peak demand by 2030. It there there were 5,000 delegates, and I dare say that every one of them uh, bought into that in a big way. That's all the chatter all weekend was about that. And then here comes the IEA with this uh, new document that really blows that narrative out out of the water. So maybe let's start with your general impressions of, about the new roadmap. Sure. So the um, for those of your listeners who haven't read the whole 220-page document, the I, I guess there were two most interesting things from it. The first is the IAA said for the first time that if we carry on on the current growth trajectory, then solar and wind will get to around 40% of electricity generation by the end of this decade. And two thirds of the cars we sell will be electric vehicles um, by the end of this decade, which is which is quite interesting. And it's kind of the framing that we have had um, and its continuity of, of, of the current ESCO. So that was the first interesting um, thing they said. The second was they, they came out the big difference between now and, and the last time round was in 2021, this was a theoretical exercise. This time it was much more like, gee, we can actually do this thing. And here are the four things that we have to do um, to be on track for net zero by 2030. And they're, they're all quite reasonable. We have to do triple renewable deployment. We have to double efficiency. We have to reduce uh, methane emissions by 75%. And we have to increase electrification. Now, you know, None of these is easy, but they're all actually feasible. Um, so I think it, it it was it was a um it was very impressive. And the um the kind of final point, general point we would make is that um in the in the pre-2021 era, before the IEA pivoted, um the 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 steps scenario was seen broadly as the most realistic one. And and something like the NZE when it first came out was a normative scenario you know what if i would suggest now is the moment for us to switch the framing and that the most realistic scenario is something between the the the, the aps scenario and the sorry i'm getting very technical aps and nze do, and and the actual and the the step scenario is actually now a normative scenario the step scenario is what would the world look like if we decided to do nothing for the next 20 years that's what the step scenario is Right. I, I want to talk about, uh, I want to get your opinion on what's driving you know, the big change. Now, we've, we've had the, the COVID-19 pandemic started in 2020. That's generally acknowledged to have been a shock 
to the global economy and also to the global energy system. Then, of course, we had Russia invading Ukraine in 2022, and that's another big shock. It put energy security on the uh, geopolitical table, and countries now are looking for ways to improve their energy security, a lot of which is building out renewables so that they generate uh, energy uh, domestically. But I want to talk about China because I think it's become really clear with the introduction of the uh, U.S. Inflation Reduction Act in, in uh, last August, uh, that'd be 2022, sorry, is that Europe and, and particularly the USA have finally figured out that China starting 20 years ago to invest in what the Chinese call new energy technologies, so wind and solar and batteries and EVs and heat pumps and all of that. China is now a powerhouse, a clean energy powerhouse. Yes. And and it's the it's not the it's not the uh application of those technologies, it's the industry to build those technologies. And it's a new industrial revolution. The US, I mean, really with Trump didn't get it, Biden finally did get it. He, yep. he made that very clear. The Euro Europe has got it, and now it's a frantic race between China, the Europe and North America, with they're racing with China to catch up in this and for economic, not dominance, but it's a it's a leadership. it's an economic yes economic leadership. Thank you, and that is pushing uh, a much higher industrial outputs in these industries and driving down costs. And yeah. that's my basic thesis of what has really fundamentally changed in the last two or three years. Your response? Well, Malcolm, you don't need me. You've got it. You know it all. No, sorry, I'm not saying that in a nasty way. It's very <laughs> impressive. I mean, um, so I, I I completely buy into this framing, which is that basically that Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine um, served as the the, um, the Sputnik moment, um, which woke up the West to the dominance of China in the industries of the future, and that led to. Um, repower you and the uh, ARA and and indeed to to developments in in India and Korea and um, and and Japan and you know it's now a race to the top so I, I completely buy that framing um, I think the the I mean the IEA for what it's worth also points out there are three other drivers of um, uh, countries and companies into um, new energy technology. See, you know, the first is also linked to this, which is energy security. I mean, th there's the race for the top, but there's also the fact that no one could cut the sun off. And therefore, you know, if you really want to, um, if we are moving to more atomized world and people want to have their own independent energy sources, what better way than to have um, uh, renewables uh, capturing that energy? So energy security, um, then of course, you know, economics, because the costs keep on falling of this stuff. And then the final one, actually, the IEA mentions specifically is health. And, and they have this chilling calculation that uh, the continuity of the current system, the difference between continuity of the current system under steps and uh, change under the net, Z, uh, net zero scenario would um, is, is 3.6 million um, deaths uh, per annum in 2030. So, you know, we, there's a lot to fight for here. Well, let's talk about the uh, concerns that the IEA addressed about the energy transition. The first one 
is that this is a, a point that's that's often dismissed by the uh, the fossil fuel advocates, which is that the energy transition is cheaper than business as usual. So this was we were very excited when the IEA did this analysis because there's lots and lots of fake statistics out there. People go, um, people who really ought to know better say the the capital cost of the um, of building out. Uh, the the green energy infrastructure is too high and it's it's therefore too expensive but they forget that the, the the capital cost is only part of the story you would need also to think about the cost of the fuel um that runs on that capital and of course um fossil fuels are expensive and renewables are free and you know we've been crying out for years to to to, to try and get somebody with a big database to do the calculation iea has now gone and done it and they basically said that yes capex is is higher, but OPEX, operating expenses, fuel expenses, are considerably lower. And net-net, you're going to save $12 trillion in the period 2050 um, by going down the green route. And that, that $12 trillion is an, an interesting number. It's exactly the same number as, um, as the o Oxford INET came out with. I mean, with a completely different methodology for what it's worth. But the, the point simply is that it's no longer credible to say um, that the, the the green energy transition is more expensive than the continuity of the fossil fuel system. That's an important moment. One of the uh, criticisms that comes from the the fossil fuel advocates, particularly in my in my world, it's the oil and gas uh, advocates. I don't know if anybody's advocating for coal in my world, but certainly oil and gas. And and that is they would do Bakum if they had any. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. Canada has plenty of coal. Uh, the British Columbia okay. and Alberta, right, uh, Saskatchewan all have uh, plenty of coal. Uh, but we're getting rid of it. We're we're we've almost squeezed it out of the Canadian uh, power Give sector so far. Anyway, uh my 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 point here uh is that and this came out at the World Petroleum Congress, is that Total global energy demand is growing and growing and growing. And Africa and Latin America, in particular, and other parts of Asia, particularly India, are, are going to be, they want the same middle class lifestyle that, that the West enjoys and that increasingly yep. people in China enjoy. And, and so that total growth in demand will overshadow any growth in, in renewables and, and the electrification uh, uh, technologies. What do you make of that? So, so there are two fundamental and basic mathematical errors that people make. There's a very long-standing sort of fossil fuel type argument, but it's just it's flat wrong. And there are two reasons. the The first reason is that the um, the good people of the emerging markets want cheap energy, same as you and me. They want energy, however, they don't care where it comes from, and the they'll take whatever the cheapest energy source is. And now the cheapest energy source is renewables. So. You can have energy growth without fossil fuel growth in and right across the emerging markets. That's the first point. Um, but then the second point is that um, most energy demand today is currently in the OECD in China. And OECD fossil fuel demand um, peaked about 15 years ago. And Chinese fossil fuel demand is about to peak. Um, and the combination of those two regions um, falling means that it, it, you can even have some residual growth um, in, in, in the emerging markets for a few years, and you still won't get any growth in the fossil fuel system as a whole. So it, it's, 
it, it is a kind of um this this is absolutely i hear this narrative all the time but you're just not looking at the facts of the case one of the points that you make in in the email uh, that i'm responding to here uh is that we are building enough grids and uh, we build about uh, 1.9 million kilometers a year uh and we need to build two kilometers uh, of uh, two million of, of grids per two million sorry of grids every year according to the, to the iea and and i get that i mean i we don't see that argument in Canada so much, but I see it in the U.S. all the time. They're frantic about building more transmission. And one of the reasons is, of course, is because all of those, the various regions that they have, they, they divided their their their, uh, uh, their power grid into, need, want more integration so that they can trade electricity, which makes it easier to integrate renewables. Okay, I get that because, you know, they're a major, they want to get back into, into manufacturing in a big way. They're going to need, you know, two or three times as much electricity. But I'm thinking of Africa and Latin America. In Africa, I mean, we're talking about solar resource. Is there a better solar resource on the planet than Africa? And you, it seems to me that with today's technology and what's coming down the, the pike in terms of uh, in terms of uh, energy storage, not just batteries, but other forms of energy storage, that you don't need to have these huge national power grids the way that we tr traditionally think of it. And in fact, this technology, the renewables and, and other electric technologies, is absolutely suited to emerging economies that have, you know, great solar resources. Yeah, this is undoubtedly true that you're going to have a lot more distributed energy. You'll have um, distributed decision making on on energy. And um, I, I, like you, have always been a little bit skeptical about this idea that the grids would have to expand as much as, as people currently think. Um, however, th that's not, in fact, the argument the IEA is making in this particular report. Um, and uh, for, for, for what it's worth, so I think your argument is right, but it will only enhance the point that the IEA is making, which is that we we often hear that we can't build enough grids and people, there's lots of wonderful anecdotal evidence about people not being able to build grids, but anecdotes are not data. You know, there are lots and lots of examples, but there's also plenty of counterexamples. So what the IEA has done is it added up all the numbers. And as you say, you know, they say, I have to admit, I was quite surprised by these numbers. I didn't, I hadn't seen them before. That's why we were quite enthused about it. You know, this point you make that we're already building 1.9 million uh, kilometers per annum of grid and we need to build two. So clearly we, you know, we're 95% of the way there. I don't think anyone's suggesting that the, you know, that last 5% is what's going to stop the energy transition. Um, so so we are, we, we, in spite of all the opposition, in spite of the, many barriers in spite of all of the local difficulties and i you know for many specific local locations i feel your pain um because it, you know i know that it can't happen in certain places um but it can happen in others and that i guess is the point that you want to add it all up um on, on a net net basis we are building enough and i think it's one other sort of very good general point which is that um it is countries are sovereign and countries are quite capable of blocking grids from being built and that's you know it's up to them but if their neighbors go and build grids and end up with much more efficient systems, they're just going to fall behind and get poorer. And, and I think, you know, what, what's going to happen over that's and that's what's happening. I mean, countries are starting to look at China. You know, China's doing this stuff. Why can't we too? Um, so, so, you know, the more people block the build out of these new energy technologies, the, 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 the more China's going to get ahead and the more 
um, pressure there will be to kind of try and catch up. Here's an important point. It actually takes two thirds less resources for a renewable economy than the current fossil fuel economy, because this is one of the, uh, it, it's a it's a meme. I see it all the time on, on social media, you know, where some engineer has, has taken back of the napkin calculations about, you know, these enormous amounts of resources that the renewable energy uh, economy will take. And in fact, the IEA now has done the math and it's two thirds less. Why is that? So, as you know, the very simple reason is that um, fossil fuel fossil fuel molecules are heavy, and you burn them once, and that's it. Whilst, of course, um, renewable electrons are light, and and the you know the net net calculation has to be well, the renewable infrastructure is quite heavy to shift all this stuff around. What's the 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 net conclusion? And and the IA has done the analysis here, and, and as you say, he says that we need we will need two thirds less weight of uh, of stuff. You know. I actually think that they are, they haven't given us the detail of how they're, of, of, of exactly how this calculation has been done. I think it's probably, they're probably understating um, the situation. And certainly Rystad data um, would suggest that uh, we will have a much lighter, well, it completely stands to reason. So, you know, a, a the coal you, for example, that you use in a coal plant is 2000 times the weight of the um, of, of what a of, of what a solar panel weighs and all that kind of stuff. So, but anyway, sorry, coming back to the IEA, they they have said they've done the, they've done the math. It's two thirds less stuff because um, renewables are just much lighter than fossil fuels. And the other kind of very important general point is that um, fossil fuels, of course, have to get shifted around the world, right? So, what is it? It's um, forty percent of oil is traded, um, uh, something like that. And I think um, uh, so. Rystad data says that twenty five percent of all land transport Heavy transport is for fossil fuels. Forty-five percent of sea transport is shifting this stuff around. You know, it's a kind of circular system. It's very heavy, and it's it's um. I mean, you know, there is weight in all those in all those ships and railways and all the rest of it. We get we start getting rid of that stuff, and it's going to be a much lighter, leaner world. Let's talk about the uh, technology and efficiency because doubling energy efficiency seems like a a very tough thing to do. But on the other hand, as uh, you point out in your email, uh, when you electrify things, you improve the efficiency, the energy efficiency. Could you explain that a bit more, please? Yes. Yeah, so the the maths lies at the heart of this pretty simple observation is 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 when you um, generate electricity by putting up a solar panel rather than burning some coal, you're using um, two or three times less primary energy because about 60% of the primary energy in the coal is lost um, in thermodynamic losses. And, and, and therefore, the very switch from coal to solar um, will actually increase your uh, efficiency very significantly. And a similar story with, um, uh, with, with electric vehicles. When an ele electric vehicle is taking the primary energy of electricity, it's using about four or five times less than the primary energy inherent within oil. So that's the math that's lying behind this. I, I bring this up all the time and, and economists, I actually had a couple of economists diss me on it, but I think they're wrong and I'm right. And that is, if you look at the equation here, so an, an internal combustion engine is about 20 to 25% efficient. That The only reason they work is because of the incredible energy density of gasoline and diesel. Mm -hmm. But 
and an, a, an electric motor is 90 to 95% efficient. And the only reason they haven't worked in the past is the incredibly low energy density of batteries. So yeah. as we've improved lithium ion batteries and now other uh, other chemistries, uh, we've caught up. The, the, yeah. equation, the equation is kind of in a balance now where, and maybe favors the electric vehicle where the actual cost per kilometer traveled is lower in an electric vehicle. It's more efficient. But there are so many more innovations coming in electric vehicles, uh, including much higher energy density in, in batteries, and then there'll be lightweighting, and then there are power electronics and software improvements, and on and on and on. There's so much innovation that we'll see over the next decade or, or two in electric vehicles that clearly, clearly to me, the, the, the balance has now shifted in favor of electric transportation. Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, I think, you know, this, 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 argument is is pretty largely one and and what's now happening again is you know you're having the electrification shifting from two wheelers to light cars to heavy cars to light trucks to heavy trucks and and so on and so forth i mean it's a very clear um shift and it's going from country to country so it's gone from scandinavia to china to europe to united states to the rest of the world i mean it's a very clear um continuum but if i may just very quickly to come back to this point about efficiency uh, it's a slightly boring point, but it's really important, which is that the simple mathematical consequence of continuity of solar and wind um, continuing to grow will actually increase global efficiency by one percentage point, which may not sound like a lot. But if global efficiency gains in the past to be one to two percent, the new standard will be two to three. It's really significant. So it kind of gives us a chance of um, of, of getting to, to, to this 4% 4, 4 level that the IEA is talking about. Yeah, just an anecdotal a bit of evidence there. We uh, installed a, a heat pump about a year and a half ago. And the amount of energy that that heat pump requires uh, on a, an annual basis is far less than than when we were using the, uh, you know, a gas furnace. And not only that, but it's far more comfortable. And now we have air conditioning in the summertime. So yeah. not only have we got, uh, you know, a, a, a more comfortable house to live in, but we're spending much less money on on energy, our annual, you know, our, our monthly energy bills. And yes, and it, and, and it illustrates this issue of the, the op, the CapEx was high, but the OpEx yeah. is much lower and I get more value out of it. And that seems yeah. to be the the uh, calculation uh, that people are making with a lot of the this new technology. Yeah, it's true. And and I think this kind of brings me back to the fact that there's a lot of very shameful analysis being done out there by consultancies and investment banks who are only looking at CapEx and not looking at OPEX. It's like, come on, guys, up your game, please, because it's really not that difficult. And there's a lot of very, very uh, misleading analysis, should we say. Now, let's talk about, you did have a, a bit of a critique of the IEA's report. Um, better foresight was one of it. What What do you mean by that? Well, I, I, you know, I, I guess the first point we would make is we, we think the IEA has really had a very big pivot over the last two years. And we are um, you know, very impressed with their analysis, dare I say. Um, the only, well, the point we were making here simply is that if you look only at what you can see today, then you will always be behind the curve of um, of exponential change, and and that's the kind of the the, the problem. So, it, 
that's what we have seen over the last 10 years. Every single year, um, the sort of standard scenarios keep on upgrading the level of uh, penetration of solar wind and the level of penetration of electric vehicles. Um, and the, the the point is, you need to get a little bit ahead of the curve and you need to be looking at the, uh, making some assumptions as Doan Pharma says of continuity of costs. You don't actually have to know precisely the technology which will drive lower costs. You can assume that costs continue to fall. That's what we were saying. Another point you make is that the IA is too conservative after 2030. If you could explain, please. Sure. So if you just look at the um, expected growth rates of, of solar, they're pretty high this decade, um, where, where people have the ability to look forward. But as soon as you get to 2030, the growth rates drop off very quickly. So solar growth rate goes from about just over 20% per annum in this decade to 7% per annum in the next decade, and then 4% per annum uh, in, in the decade after. And I think the point we simply made is that it, it's unlikely that growth of such a cheap technology where costs are continuing to fall will suddenly fall off a cliff. And, and what's much more likely we would suggest is that you get continued um, uh, rapid growth of, of these cheap technologies. And that means that actually, a lot of the seemingly difficult, intractable, hard to solve sectors today, the, these technology will kind of filter into um, and solve those problems. And we don't know how, um, but it's in 2023, but it's also reasonable to say that cheap technology finds a way. So Kingsmill, one of the points you make is that it's competition between companies and between countries that's driving rapid change. And I bring this up, I mean, we, we dealt with it a little bit in our discussion about China and, and, and the competition with Europe and, and North America. But uh, you use S-curves, uh, technology adoption S-curves in your analysis, as, as I do myself. And one of the points is that once the technology is past its inflection point, with around 5 7% of, of market penetration, then it begins to accelerate at a, in exponentially. It's going up the, on the, the hockey stick okay. growth we talk, we talk yeah. about. And the point here is that in most markets, most of these electric technologies have already passed their inflection point. They are now competitive with fossil fuel technologies, particularly oil and gas technologies. And the only role of climate policy is to affect pace of change, not, and, and make them more competitive, not make them competitive uh, when they're uncompetitive. That's a bit, bit awkward way to, to phrase it, but I think you understand what I mean. Is yeah. that a fair, a fair comment? Yeah, yeah, it's completely fair in the electricity sector and um and it's about to be true uh in the light transportation sector and is also true in the um in the heating sector so it is quite right to say that if we had no policy then we would be switching over to these technologies eventually anyway um however i don't think we can or should um ignore the role that policy plays because policy can certainly slow change and um, a, a failure to adapt systems can make change much more difficult and, and more expensive actually. And, and I'll give you a very simple example. Um, in, in the UK, we, we have all this um, 
electricity that's now being generated by wind, um, which is cheaper and um, coming into the system, but it's not yet showing up in customers in, in the pockets of um, people like me who are buying electricity. Electricity is still expensive. And the, the reason why, one of the reasons why is the government hasn't yet changed the pricing regime for electricity and 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 electricity in the UK is still incredibly enough still being all being priced off gas everything and anyway sorry it's a very it's a very simple example that you do actually need policymakers step up to the plate and think creatively and change systems and and actually the other point is they have to create a level playing field i mean it's not even a question of tilting the playing field in favor of renewables at the moment in most markets in most countries systems are tilted in favor of fossil fuel incumbencies you know Let's at least have a fair bite between the two technologies. At least make um, these folks pay for their negative externalities, um, and and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. Um, in part two of our unethical oil series about the Alberta oil and gas industry, um, we just we estimate, and I say that based on the uh, work that's been done by other experts, including the Alberta Energy Regulator. You know that the uh, environmental liabilities of the oil, conventional oil and gas industry, never mind the the uh, oil sands, is about 130 billion dollars. You know these are uh, wells that have been uh, suspended and inactive, or they've been uh, sealed but not reclaimed. The site hasn't been reclaimed, and uh, at the same time, uh, just uh, about a month and a half ago, the Alberta government enacted a seven-month moratorium on wind and solar, in part because of concerns from their rural base, political base, uh, that you know uh, these uh, wind and solar farms uh, wouldn't be properly reclaimed at the end of their life, and which is the the irony here and the hypocrisy when the oil and gas industry gets to get away. With uh, without uh, paying for their own environmental liabilities is is illustrates your point. Yeah, it's also quite weird. I mean, the, the this is what I find um, strange in the debate. I mean, for for average consumers, just want cheap stuff and don't want to have to, um, you know, have profits privatized and losses socialized. And you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with governments making people pay to clean up their mess, and they should just do it. Indeed, they should. Uh, unfortunately, it gets wrapped up in all sorts of uh, political, uh, you know, debates and, and culture wars and and so on. But grist for another conversation. Um, one of the points that you make is that big models have limits. What do you mean by that? Well. The the in a static world where very little changes, big models are great because um, you need they're they're useful at answering questions like what happens if this coal plant um, closes down, what happens if we can no longer import gas from this country. That's what those big models are useful for, but they're not good at all at looking at the long term future of energy and they're particularly bad at times of rapid technological change because they simply are unable to factor it into the models because the models are too detailed and they're using data that's old and they're backward looking and all they're doing actually at heart is extrapolating the present into the future um 
but but with a million you know with a million variables and 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 that's why these very large energy forecasting models have been failing um in general over the last 20 years but specifically over the last 5 years because of the speed of change and you know what then becomes madness is that is if governments continue to use these big models they need to start thinking differently and use superior um modeling techniques and you know there are folks out there there's the famous work done by the guys in, in oxford the oxford inet model is the work done by um these amazing modeling teams in rystad um, or bnf and what characterizes all of these folks is they don't look backwards they look forwards they don't model everything they model the um the the, the parts of the system which are changing rapidly and assume that other parts uh, adjust to to accommodate that which is how a world works and that's you know that's what governments now need to start doing um i want to talk to you about carbon pricing because canada has been uh, maybe it might be pioneer. okay we'll call it a pioneer uh and and it's been hugely hugely controversial and I remember interviewing economists five and six years ago about carbon pricing, and they'd lay out the theory, and it sounded really great. Um, and then th there were some dissenters appeared around 2020, 2021, who were saying, you know what, carbon pricing has its limits because of, uh, for pol primarily because of political backlash. And so you need to have a combination of industrial policy uh, and, and, uh, and carbon pricing. And that all made sense in 20, you know, around 2021, just a couple of years ago. But now it's it seems like, and it, and I, I think you're making this argument that what really drives lower prices and the adoption of this new technology is simply declining cost curves and increasing value for consumers. And that in carbon pricing, well, the conclusion I would take away from that is that you know carbon pricing may play a much weaker role than we had expected uh, what's your take on it well I, I, yeah i think specifically one of our critiques of the iea modeling was that it all seemed to be you know they're, they're not disclosing how their the model works in, in in great detail but it seems to be based on relatively high levels of carbon prices which with the current political economy don't um on, on a global level seem to be particularly realistic and that makes it easier for people to dismiss this um as a normative model um but actually in reality change that's been happening is being driven very much more precisely, as you say, by um, the learning curves for renewable energy technologies, um, particular, particularly modular, widely distributed ones, which just makes them cheaper and cheaper and and, and um, deployed in more and more areas. And, and um, so it's actually, that's been the primary, uh, primary driver of change. Coming back to the wider debate about carbon prices, the absolutely global expert on this issue, um, of course, is Simon Sharp. Um, who, who's, whose latest book, Five Times Faster, just recently out. And he looks at this issue and he's very interesting. His, his conclusion is that it's great in theory and economists love it, um, but actually what works much better in practice is um, targets and bans. Um, and, um, and, and precisely the story we're talking about, about rapid growth of superior alternative technologies. That's very interesting. Uh, I, I, may, uh, I may interject in some of the uh, Twitter, uh, sorry, X uh, conversations with economists that pop up on my timeline on a regular basis and and throw that out there. I can only imagine the response. Uh, you you and I are connected on X, so you may want to peek in uh, on those once in a while. I'm sure it'd be very entertaining. Um, 
So where are we to take this, Kingsmill? I mean, you and I, I've been interviewing you now for at least three or four years. And the things that you talked about three or four years ago, which really is is not that long, uh, you know, rapidly accelerating technological change, uh, increasing, uh, you know, exponential growth in the adoption of these technologies, growth of in the industrial capacity to manufacture them, which drives down costs and, and increases value for consumers. All of those things, frankly, are coming true. And so given your track record so far, which I would say is, is, is pretty good, what do you see for the rest of 2030? Well, it's, it's kind of you. I mean, with, with all due respect to myself, I mean, this kind of framing is, you know, there are many other people who've been making this argument for a very long time that the um, the, the, the exponential growth of these technologies would be the core driver. So you know, it's not just a us at Rocky Mountain Institute, but thanks for the um, observation, a compliment. But um, look, the, the if you if you look forward and assume that these technologies continue on the S curves, which have characterized other technology shifts and which have thus far characterized um, leaders in these markets, then the kind of framing that the IEA is talking about of having around 40% um, of electricity by solar and wind by 2030, um, or 30 to 40% by 2030, and two thirds of car sales by 2030, that actually is or should be seen as the default and most likely assumption. So we 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 like to call this S curve as usual instead of business as usual. So S A U, not B A U. So I think that's the point. Of people's framing of the nature of change simply needs to switch from um, linear to exponential. And and if you do that, um, actually, the, the the kind of world that's opening up becomes much easier to grasp. It's much you know, it's it, we we've seen this many many times before. It's quite normal. You shouldn't be surprised by it, but we start to have to plan for it. And I think that's the other key point. We you know we make by having all of these kind of fake debates about um, you know the 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 non problems of the renewable economy. We're actually losing ourselves and losing our ability to react um, and prepare for the the future that's kind of coming. I, I I come back to this that kind of argument all the time in Canada because one of the things that Canada has been blessed with is a power grid that's 84% emissions free already. It's 60% hydro, 17% nuclear, and then the rest is made up of wind and wind and solar, maybe a little geothermal. And so there there hasn't really been been the kind of pressure uh, from consumers and even from a lot of uh, provincial governments. Uh, around the adoption of new clean energy technology. Now, notwithstanding the fact that that Canada is a very one of the largest per capita emitters in the world, a lot of that, most of that, comes from the fact that uh, from Alberta and and the the oil sands and and their oil and gas uh, oil and gas production. In the rest of the country, you've got provinces like British Columbia and Manitoba and Quebec and and to a lesser extent Ontario uh, that that where you know, they have either hydro, uh, and I guess in the case of Ontario, a lot of nuclear. So they're already clean. And it, it the, that pressure hasn't been there. And and then the, that's reflected in the energy or the the national conversation of, around energy. It's like, 
well, you know, why do we have to do, why do we need electric vehicles and why do we need to adopt renewables so quickly? And why do we need to do all that? Because, you know, we just, we don't see our world changing as quickly as Europe does. And now the U.S. does. And of course, China and, and other and parts of Asia do. And, and uh, it almost becomes a bit of an incumbency uh argument, you know, where you've just had it so comfortable and, you know, the competition hasn't arrived on your doorstep yet. And you, therefore, you you don't see the winds of change. You don't feel the winds of change. You don't see things changing as, as rapidly as as people in other countries do. And and then all of a sudden things do change and you're not prepared for it. Yeah, I think, again, this is the argument we made from many times is that at heart, this is not a moral debate. Um, it's an economic debate and and you know the nobody really cares you know you might be very very good people making very very green um fossil fuels but if you people don't want to buy fossil fuels you can't sell them anymore um and that's the point it's, it's the economics the economic change that's going on and um you know if, if you think about countries like Canada or parts of the Canadian um, system which are quite close to the top end of the global cost curve um as demand for fossil fuels and oil specifically starts to peak um, and then decline, someone is going to be left at the top um, of the cost curve and that stuff's not going to be required anymore. You just got to make sure it's not you. That is one of the most uh, interesting arguments that I have on a regular basis, because I always ask the question, okay, we have 103 million barrels a day of oil consumption uh, now. Uh, if if demand peaks at 105 or 100, 108, whatever it might be in 2030, and then begins to decline sometime in the early 2030s, then what happens when demand falls to 100 million barrels a day? And you've got 108 million barrels a day of supply chasing it. I mean, yep. you know, I'm not an economist, but it would seem to me that, that prices are going to fall uh, in particular because the much of the oil supply in the world is is controlled by national oil companies who need the revenue to support their governments. So you know, like in the in in Africa, even in Saudi Arabia, you know, they need eighty dollar oil to support to to support their social programs and and, and their government, and they will not go quietly into the good night. You know, they will no, fight no. and claw and compete and subsidize and and that it seems to me. That once demand starts to fall, then it's then it's a it's a free for all. It's going to be a cage match between all of the suppliers, and there's no predicting uh, who is going to come out uh, on top. You know, say by 2040, maybe I guess we could assume that Saudi Arabia will, because it could cost them ten dollars to get a a barrel of oil out of the ground. But there are many many other suppliers who will either be forced into bankruptcy or will be uh, will I mean you know, basically be non-competitive. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the IA in this, in the uh, NZE scenario, uh, they figure out that the price point at which um, supply and demand cost curves meet in 2030 um, for oil is $42. And then it's falling after that. You know, that kind of gives you an, a sort of understanding for the framework of, of, of what's coming if, if, um, if this, if this um, framing is is accurate, but but actually you don't even have to be particularly um, brilliant. You know, you just look back twenty years at what happened in the nineteen eighties. Yeah, you know, when when um, oil demand was flat or stagnant, and um, 
uh, demand just wasn't coming through. I mean, that's the point. We don't, you know, we've seen this movie before where you have overcapacity and 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 struggling uh, in incumbents, and you have to fight to get um, the, the 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 highest cost producers out of the market. It, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise. You don't even have to look back that far. I mean, in twenty in late twenty fourteen, the Saudis opened the taps and uh, an increased supply. I think there was a an oversupply of about a million and a half or two million barrels a day of oil, and prices absolutely fell off the table in twenty fifteen. And uh, we know here in Canada because uh, you know Alberta was devastated. We were looking at twenty three dollar oil when break evens, you know, for most of the producers were around forty to fifty, sometimes sixty dollars. And there was a, you know, a lot of, it was carnage for a couple of, for a couple of years, very tough times. And yeah. it, it seems to me that that is the more likely future for, for, uh, for oil companies uh, in the, or, you know, a decade from now, than this sort of soft landing managed, you know, decline in, in uh, supply, uh, you know, as to meet declining demand, which is kind of the, the scenario that the the oil company executives i heard it at king's mill i heard it all last week at the world petroleum congress that they literally believe that the demand is going to increase out to 20 2050 yeah well i mean you know i guess um that's what you should expect um but that's also not very good investment um just to listen to one side of the argument um so th this idea about a, a um a, a soft landing is again it's completely contrary to the way other uh technologies have uh shifted we didn't all kind of slowly leave our nokia phones behind um you know we just went straight to, to buy iphones but i think you know what what lies at the heart of this debate is st structural versus cyclical change and because the oil industry and all the people working in it have only experienced cyclicality over the last um you know ever since the industry was founded and it's always been rising um you know with, with periods of cyclicality they think it's the same this time and you know you see uh, i i saw the american petroleum institute for example um in the financial times just saying you know, we've heard all about peak oil before you know it's complete nonsense it's an old idea um but you know this is just actually intellectually feeble just look at the facts guys look at the speed with which um electric vehicles are growing in the world's largest market of china and you know any analyst can just do the math. It's pretty. It's pretty simple um, to figure out how quickly um, the, the 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 demand for oil is going to start to to fall in in the largest sector. Road transport is basically half the total, and um, you know it's just a new world that's coming. It's a structural shift because oil. Sorry, final point to make. Oil has never had a um, a competitor, a, a real structural competitor before, which can do the same job for cheaper. Um, that's that's why it's 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 not the same as the past. It's no longer a cyclicality. It's structural shift. The world is changing, and the IEA I think has captured it in its uh, its last couple of forecasts much better than uh, than the uh, uh, the fossil fuel advocates would would agree. In fact, uh, at the World Petroleum Congress, I I heard over and over again. In fact, I saw. I, I was sitting in on a plenary session when the Amir, Am, Amin, Amir uh, Nasser, the CEO of Saudi Aramco, called it a political advocacy organization. Uh, which... Unlike OPEC, of course, which is a, um, a dedicated pursuer of truth. <laughs> yeah, touche. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> on that note, on that note, Kingsmill, thank you very much for this. Always enjoy our conversations. 
Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Malcolm.